Let's pray. Uh, Dear Father, we thank you for your kindness in bringing us into the knowledge of your holy word, that you have brought us the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would teach us and instruct us, uh, that you would use the the gifts you have given the whole church for our benefit, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at the life of one of the reformers. Does any of the children remember which reformer we looked at last week? Alfred. That's right. Martin, the other Martin, Martin Bootser. And of course, Martin Luther is, is the more famous uh, Martin, who was a reformer. But Martin Bootser also deserves to be remembered, was, had a very adventurous life we saw last time, uh, from one city to the next, especially in Strasbourg, uh, which was then part of the Holy Roman Empire. And he was one who never quit to seek uh, both the unity of Christians and the advance establishment of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, today I want to look more at his teachings. Not all of his teachings, obviously. He taught a lot. He wrote a lot. Um, and we wouldn't be able to look at everything he ever taught. Um, a lot of what he taught probably would, you know, would be shared by other reformers as well. And that is one reason why we remember the Reformation is because they, they taught uh, God's word, that they recovered many biblical teachings that had either been lost or who at least had been obscured and minimized and other corruptions and errors had had come in that uh, made it quite obscure. And so they uh, brought forth the word and and taught it quite well. And we are all the better for it. Uh, So I want to go through a number of different doctrines, teachings, and um, we have a lot to look at. Uh, I'll start by, by quoting one of his biographers, also named Martin, Martin Greshat, that for Bootser, Christ was not just the savior of the individual human being, but also the restorer of God's intended order of creation. Uh, certainly, he proclaimed Christ as the savior for each and every individual you know, that would believe in him, uh, that that was very important to him. Uh, but also that being saved, one would uh, be born again by the Spirit and so uh, devoted to the love of one's neighbor, and that would transform one's whole life. Um, The first doctrine, which is of special importance, is that of Scripture. And uh, he would say, Concerning the things of God, nothing is to be taught unless it is expressly set out in the scriptures or may be truly and certainly proved from the same. Uh, that the church has a message, which is to proclaim one rule of, of faith and life, uh, the will of God that we ought to believe and, and obey, and that is found in Holy Scripture. It's not supplemented by other teachings that didn't get written down and somehow got transformed by oral tradition or kind of uh, came up in the meantime and would be added to it, but rather what we need from God is found in Holy Scripture. And so the sufficiency of Scripture for you know, every good work 
uh, was an important part of the Reformation because a lot of the Roman Catholic doctrines um, were, were simply adding to Scripture. You know, things like, oh, let's pray to the saints. Does, does Scripture teach us to pray to the saints? Does, does it even really, you know, no, it doesn't. There's no, uh, no basis in, for script, in Scripture for that even being possible. Uh, and so it's, it's more like a superstition, something that people came up with, like, oh, we thought this would be a good idea. But it's not based upon God's Word. And so there's no ground for us to do it in faith, uh, and therefore ought not to be uh, done as part of the worship of God. Um, and more could be said, but a lot of things boil down to, does Scripture support this, this teaching uh, or this duty? Uh, of course, a big point in the Reformation was that of justification. Uh, justification, being made right with God, being declared right by God. Are you condemned by God, or are you justified? And Bootser realized that some people use the word justification to be, uh, to be declared righteous. You know, like a judge would say, you are innocent, you are righteous, or you are condemned. He also realized that some people, like the church fathers, like Augustine, use the word justification to refer to being made righteous, to being made holy, to, to being transformed so that you do good things. Now, he taught that the Bible teaches both concepts. The Bible teaches both that you are, made, you are declared righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness received by faith alone, and at the same time, the same people are also made more and more righteous, and that faith that they have not only receives the gifts of, of forgiveness, but also works by love and is active in, in deeds of righteousness. So he said that both of these concepts, whatever you want to call them, are true, are in Scripture. He would argue that the church fathers themselves taught both, even if they didn't use the same terminology, uh, but the, the typical Protestant terminology, which we would argue is also the biblical terminology, is that the first of these is properly called justification, that we are declared righteous. And what's the word that we usually use for the second concept of being made righteous? I hear people whispering it. <laughs> Sanctification, yes. Now, in... in uh, debates or in colloquies with Roman Catholics, Bootser was willing to say, okay, there's two kinds of justification. As long as we keep them distinct and separate, you know, I'm okay with using the word for both as long as the concepts are, are distinct. Uh, but uh, most of us, you know, have, have found it better to use different words. Justification for being declared righteous, sanctification for being made righteous or transformed and both of these are, are found by being united to Christ. That Christ is our righteousness before God, and Christ also is the source of our transform transformation, our, our renewal unto his likeness. <clears throat> uh, Bootser also held what we would call a Calvinist understanding of election and regeneration, although it wasn't a Calvinist position yet, because, you know, Calvin was a young guy at the time, that uh, Bootser was, was uh, a decade or two older than him, uh, but, but would agree. Um, we looked at last time the Lord's Supper was an important 
uh, point. He, he rejected the Roman Catholic understanding of the sacrifice of the Mass and transubstantiation. But he and Zwingli and Luther um, all did that, but they also differed among themselves somewhat on what, how exactly Christ was present, his body and blood, how was that present or not in the Lord's Supper. He tried to bring unity, but he, he had a position himself. Uh, this is kind of a longer quote, but this is what he taught. He says, The bread that we break, that is to say, consecrate, distribute, and receive as the Lord commanded us, is a participation in the body of Christ which was given for us, and the cup, a participation in the blood of Christ that was shed for us. This is a participation whereby we become more and more part of his flesh, his bone, and blood. We abide and live increasingly in him, and he in us, and in him we comprise one body and one loaf. Consequently, we agree with the holy bishop and martyr Irenaeus and all the ancient apostolic churches and fathers in acknowledging that there are two realities in the holy sacrament, an earthly, the bread and wine, which remain unaltered in their nature and substance, as the godly Pope Galatius I rightly acknowledges, and a heavenly, the true body and the true blood of Christ, that is to say, our Lord Christ himself, complete and truly God and man. Nevertheless, he does not leave heaven, neither is he naturally mingled with the bread and wine, nor locally confined in them, but gives himself to us there after a heavenly manner, as food and sustenance for eternal life, and to impart assurance of the blessed resurrection. You notice a couple things in that quote. First of all, he's again emphasizing his continuity with the historical church. You know, as Irenaeus, you know, name-dropping a few people along the way, that we agree with these people, uh, but that there's two things in the sacrament, the earthly physical thing that you can see, but also what it symbolizes. And one error of the Roman Catholic understanding is that it, it made it only one thing, that the thing you see is the thing that it symbolizes, and it no longer fits that definition of a sacrament. Um, and then also he kind of distances himself from at least certain understandings of the Lutheran position, um, that it's not like his, his body and blood are, are confined within the bread and wine, but as we receive these things rightly, we also feed upon Christ um, spiritually. And he is the food and sustenance for eternal life. He also would say, Therefore, let the teachable be taught that no presence of Christ is enjoyed in the Eucharist unless it is rightly observed, and then only a presence both apprehended and retained by faith alone. Uh, there might be the presence of, of Christ being truly presented uh, to your faith in the supper, but it's only enjoyed when it's rightly observed, if, uh, those who receive it in a worthy manner. Uh, to others, they, they do not receive, they do not feed upon Christ, because to feed upon Christ is to have communion with Christ and, and have eternal life. You know, it's a beneficial thing, and that's only received by faith. Another uh, point of, of teaching is on uh, Sabbath and festivals. But yes, go ahead. I think, I think so, although I don't know if... Um, Calvin would be very similar to Bootser on, on the Lord's Supper, and Calvin would kind of explain more on the Holy Spirit being the one to kind of be that link. You know, how do we explain this heavenly 
But I think he's also simply contrasting it with earthly, that it's not a biological thing, uh, but, but a, a heavenly uh, reality. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think similar to what we mean by spiritually. But, of course, you know, is that the same as what Zwingli means by spiritually, or is that what Calvin means by spiritually? Like, the, the even differences. Zwingli would, would kind of affirm a type of presence, but it's much more of like, he's present because we're thinking about him as we take it, whereas someone like Calvin or Luth, uh, Bootser would emphasize that he's objectively being presented to you in the supper, and that's received by faith. The eating itself is not faith, but you do eat by faith. But the, fee- the, the eating is communion with Christ's body and blood, uh, receiving that spiritual benefit uh, to you. But it's the same that's being offered in the word as well, uh, just being offered to you, presented to you in a different way. But yeah, it's not physical food that physically feeds you in a physical way like the bread and wine do. Yes. Yeah. If you want to think of it as a spectrum, you, know, you have Luther here, Melanchthon here, Bootser and, and probably Calvin here, and then Bollinger here and Zwingli here, <laughs> where you have a spectrum from you know, more um, uh, real presence to, almost to the extent of, you know, of a local presence in Luther's position and on Zwingli's side, where there's not much of a real presence, you know, it's, it's more of a, a symbolic thing. Um, and really, Calvin and Bollinger would be the ones to kind of unite the Reformed position, um, bringing together Zwingli and Bootser uh, and their followers over time. But there's still a, some degree of variety within the Reformed camp, exactly how to articulate it. So Bootser wanted to see unity among this whole spectrum that, hey, we're close enough, guys. We can unite even if we disagree a little bit here and there. We can find a formula that, should, that we should be able to agree on. But he still had a, had a position of his own that he, he taught um, that would be very similar to what we would teach in Reformed churches today. Um, with respect to Sabbath and festivals, more so than other early Reformers, he... Uh, or at least more clearly than the other early reformers, he taught that the first day of the week was to be observed as the Sabbath day and to be spent in the exercise of piety. Um, he is viewed kind of as a precursor to the Sabbatarianism of the, of the English Puritans. Um, there was some debate within the early reformed, like is, is the Lord's day uh, the Christian Sabbath, or is it more so that the Sabbath has been abolished, but you know, we still need to do these things, so the church appointed the first day of the week, and we should, you know, we have Christian liberty, but the church has decided on it, so we should, you know, give rest to our servants and worship God and um, uh, observe these things on the Lord's day. And, and Bootser would, would say, we should observe it with the same piety and zeal as the Old Testament uh, believers observe the Sabbath day. We should devote the whole day, you know, to, to the pursuit of, of piety. Um, on the other hand, he's not quite like the English Puritans and more like the other early reformers that he thought it was useful to observe a few special days um, to meditate upon the deeds of Christ and to give thanks for them, uh, such as the Incarnation, Nativity, Epiphany, Passion, Resurrection, Ascension, and Pentecost. 
although his greater emphasis was on using the days rightly. Whatever days are appointed, we should observe them in a holy manner. Better to have fewer days rightly observed than a bunch of days and not really paying attention to them. Um, That was probably his main emphasis. But he was also thought it was appropriate to observe other uh, days. Notice he he mentions incarnation nativity as two different holidays. What, what, What would we call those today? Which one is Christmas? Nativity. So which one is his incarnation? Annunciation. Annunciation, yeah. When Christ was, was formed in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And that's when he took on flesh, uh, was when he was conceived. Uh, of course, then he was born, and that was important too. Any other questions thus far before I dig into the next topic? Um, one of his books that has been translated into English uh, is De Regno Christi, or The Kingdom of Christ. Uh, and I have, have that here. Um, it's half of this book. And this is a book that he wrote in response to a plea of his English friends and sponsors, you know, near the end of his life when he was in England. They suggested to him that by way of acknowledging the welcome he had received in their country, he might present to the king as a New Year's gift in which his own convictions and experiences as a Protestant reformer would be reflected. Uh, So he sent the work to the king's tutor in October of 1550, and it would seem to have some effect on the young king. This was the king who became a king quite young. I think he died when he was in his teenage years, um, unfortunately, but he was a godly king compared to King Josiah. And... uh, he would die in 1553, but in the meantime, uh, would, would take up some of these reforms. The book would later be published in Switzerland, and then translated into German, and Strasbourg, and in French, and Geneva. But besides its influence as a book, it also is helpful because it's a record of his conception of the Reformation, of what he had been doing for decades from town to town in Germany. And now he was adapting it for England and writing it to the King of England, like, well, here's how you know, we should promote the Reformation here in England, because um, England had broken away from the Roman Catholic Church for a few, you know, a number of decades, but uh, King Henry VIII had kind of kept it mostly Catholic in its doctrine, and so it was basically the beginning of Reformation in England. And so he, we, we can read it as an insight into his whole you know, conception of, of the Reformation. Uh, he wrote it to describe how people like Edward VI could and should firmly restore for their peoples the blessed kingdom of the Son of God, our only Redeemer, i.e., renew, institute, and establish the administration not only of religion, but also of all other parts of the common life, according to the mind of Christ, our Savior and Supreme King. So it's a a wide-ranging book, as I hope to point out. It's divided into two books, in fact. The first is on the kingdom of Christ, and the second is how to renew and establish the kingdom of Christ. Um, the first chapter, he, he talks about the names of the kingdoms. Then he compares the kingdom of Christ to the kingdoms of the world. It's not just another earthly political kingdom, but there's com- compare and contrast uh, to them. In chapter 3, he basically exposits Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, on the kingdom of Christ. Let me go ahead, if... Uh, 
if you'll bear with me, I want to give you a taste of the book by reading uh, just uh, maybe two pages here from the book as he goes through the book of Isaiah and, you know, really punchy, you know, expositing it. uh, And I'll read the part on Isaiah 2. Isaiah, more an evangelist than a prophet of the kingdom of Christ, has described the properties of the kingdom of Christ in many places with wonderful clarity, completeness, and gravity. The other prophets have also contributed their share. We shall mention only a few of the more obvious testimonies. We read, therefore, first of all, in Isaiah 2, 2, In the last days it will come about that there will be a mountain of the house of the Lord, solidly established on top of the mountains, and it shall be elevated above the heights of the earth, and all nations shall flow to it. Because the Church of Christ was first instituted at Jerusalem, in the scriptures it is therefore frequently called Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and the Mountain of the Lord. In this we ought to recognize and see the firmly enduring stability of the kingdom of Christ, for the kingdoms of the world are susceptible to constant changes. We learn further from the same text that there was to be established a mountain of the house of the Lord on top of the mountains and elevated above the heights of the earth. That all nations and kingdoms must in the end be subject to the church of Christ if they want to have a gracious God and desire to be partakers of eternal life. For the same prophet later testifies, speaking the word of the Lord, all nations and kingdoms shall perish and altogether be destroyed, which are unwilling to serve the people of Christ. For forgiveness of sins is not granted or eternal life received except in the church of Christ. What is added next, all nations are to flow together to the mountain of the house of the Lord, shows the eagerness for receiving the kingdom of Christ, with which the Gentiles were so remarkably inflamed as soon as it began to be preached to every creature. There follows in the same prophecy, and so many peoples will go and say, come, let us ascend to the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For a law shall go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. By this forthcoming event, in which he predicts that many people will invite each other to ascend the mountain of the Lord, he teaches enthusiasm enthusiasm for true community in Christ, and mutual concern for achieving salvation. For whoever really believes in Christ cannot but proclaim his kingdom, and invite to it those whom he can. I have believed, so it is sung in Psalm 116.10, on account of which I have spoken. Now, because the Lord wants his own to be closely connected with one another as members of a body and support each other in the life of God, he wants sacred assemblies to be held with great devotion for this very cause. In places consecrated to this purpose, not only at Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim, but over all the world. What comes next in the prophecy and he shall teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths, shows mainly the need of a true Christian congregation to have good, solid doctrine and to live up to it. It must be observed that the Lord himself teaches his own, and he teaches them his ways. Although he uses his ministers for this purpose, it is he alone who makes the doctrine of his ministers efficacious, and who enables his ministers faithfully to indicate and recommend his ways from his scriptures, as he commanded them when he was about to ascend to heaven." And as the apostles set about doing on the day of Pentecost. For this reason, he adds, a law shall go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. By this saying, we are taught two things, that the doctrine of salvation is to be sought from Christ alone and only in his church, and that it is that doctrine which the apostles first began to teach at Jerusalem. 
There follows in the prophecy, and he will judge among the nations, and he shall rebuke many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. House of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Here it is taught that there ought to flourish in the churches a severity of judgment against sins, so that sin will be remitted for the penitent and believing, through the preaching of repentance and forgiveness of sins. But the sins of those who despise the gospel of Christ will be retained. But then if anyone has already been received into the church of Christ and is more gravely delinquent, the judgment of the Lord ought also to be exercised in regard to such persons that they may be moved to true repentance and urged to bring forth the true fruits of repentance." Those who will not hear the church in these matters are to be held as Gentiles and publicans separated from the fellowship of Christ. What comes next, that his people will beat their swords into plowshares, etc., is said of those who have truly accepted the kingdom of Christ. For they deny themselves and seek not their own, but only what contributes to the salvation of their neighbor. In the saying, House of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It is shown that no one is to be reckoned of the house of Jacob, that is, of the true church of Christ, who does not enthusiastically frequent sacred assemblies and invite those whom he can to the same, that they may thus more clearly perceive and more earnestly follow the light of the Lord, that is, the pure doctrine of the gospel. And then I quote one, one shorter quote at the end where he's commenting on Isaiah 61. It is the proper duty of the citizens of the kingdom of Christ that they restore all the old ruins that have lain waste for many ages, i.e., that they lead many peoples who for generations have been deprived of any knowledge and love of God to faith in Christ and the development of righteousness. You can see some of this is Bootser's own motivation. You know, why did he not quit to go from city to city to try to advance the kingdom of Christ? Well, we ought to have this enthusiasm. To, to frequent the sacred assemblies, to draw others to it, to proclaim a, a, uh, to others uh, the gospel. Uh, he's very evangelistic uh, as he speaks of the kingdom of Christ and building it up. You also see his emphasis on church discipline, which comes out in another book that he wrote on the care of souls um, and something that he wanted to establish in Strasbourg. He also, in a book, mentions that there's different conditions over time, and I like this, because some people talk about the kingdom as if its experience is all, always the same throughout church history, uh, or like there's only one period of the Old Testament history that is a model for today, like the church today is only the church in Babylon, or only the church in the wilderness, or only the church in the land. Well, actually, throughout history, just as in the Old Covenant, so in the New Covenant, there's a variety of experiences. Uh, he says that... You know, sometimes there's persecution, such as described in Matthew 10, where everyone's turning against each other and there's there's death and and violence being meted out. Also, there's times of stability under ungodly rulers and tyrants, as described in the early chapters of Acts, where the rulers are ungodly, but the church flourishes and is at peace and the gospel goes forth. There's also times in which our king magnificently fulfills the prophecies mentioned about the happiness and glory of the church, as he did under Constantine and the pious emperors who followed him. Uh, And so there's also those periods of the church, too, uh, where we see those prophecies um, especially fulfilled, um, a fulfillment that culminates then in the age to come. In chapter 6 through 14, he talks about 
The church especially, the ministry of the word, the sacraments, church discipline, and, and a reformed sort of penance, reform of ceremonies, the care for the needy, and these, of course, are vital to Reformation. But he doesn't stop there. In his second book, um, he is telling, well, how do we establish these things? And first of all, he spends like five chapters on, you have to start with the word. You can't just reform by decree, O king. You have to have the word of God preached. You have to have well-trained preachers who are going to evangelize, who are going to proclaim and persuade the people to embrace the Reformation. You saw that sort of thing with those like three weak debates where these things were hashed out in front of the people to, to persuade them to embrace the gospel. But then he also gets to areas of reform uh, for the king to work on. And here's 14 areas, uh, not 14, tw- twice this, <laughs> 14 uh, areas of reformation. First of all, children must be catechized and educated for God. Second, the sanctification of holy days. Third, the sanctification of churches. Fourth, the restoration of the ministries of the church. Five, claiming ecclesiastical goods for Christ the Lord and their pious use. Six, poor relief. Seventh, the sanctification and regulation of marriage, which occupies a fourth of the book. Uh, Eight, the civil education of youth and the suppression of idleness. Nine, controlling luxury and harmful expenses. Ten, on the revision and elaboration of civil laws. 11, the appointment of magistrates. 12, the establishment and correction of tribunals and judges. 13, the custody of accused persons. And 14, the modification of penalties. Um, I realize that we're kind of out of time. I have a bunch of interesting quotes, but I'll just mention that uh, he has a plan for education, that everyone should be taught in reading, writing, and the writings and catechism of the Christian faith but then some instructed in the liberal arts for public service, and some educated in manual industry and crafts, whatever they're best endowed and gifted for, but everyone to be oriented towards a zeal for productive work that serves others, not godless idleness. Um, Advocates for godly practice of honest recreations, such as singing, poetry, dancing, drama. He even sketches out a few potential plays that could be developed, uh, such as like a comedy from the uh, conflict between Lot and Abraham's herdsmen, and he spends like a page or two on that. Uh, not, not banning the theater, but, but reforming it. Um, he also thinks recreation, the use of weapons in mock battles would be great for young men, uh, and uh, archery and things like that. He talks about commerce. He talks about the renewal of agriculture and gardening. Um, he talks about the punishment of evildoers. Um, He says, but since no one can describe an approach more equitable and wholesome to the commonwealth than that which God describes in his law, it is certainly the duty of all kings and princes who recognize that God has put them over his people, that they follow most studiously his own method of punishing evildoers. For inasmuch as we have been freed from the teaching of Moses through Christ the Lord, so that it is no longer necessary for us to observe the civil decrees of the law of Moses, namely in terms of the way and circumstances in which they are described, Nevertheless, insofar as the substance and proper end of these commandments are concerned, and especially those which enjoin the discipline that is necessary for the whole commonwealth, whoever does not reckon that such commandments are to be conscientiously observed is certainly not attributing to God either supreme wisdom 
or a righteous care for our salvation. So he said, well, let's go to Scripture to reform civil government and, and the penalties that are administered for things, and the laws uh, that are ruling the commonwealth. The, the rule of Christ has implications for, for culture, for economics, for government, uh, as well as the, the reformation of uh, the church and its ministry. So that's, that's a little bit on Martin Bootser. I realize I already went over time, and there could be more that could be said. Uh, but um, it's, a, it's a good book on the kingdom of Christ. Uh, and even if you don't have time to read the book, uh, at least you can, can share Martin Bootser's zeal uh, to see Christ reign, to invite others into the kingdom, uh, to enthusiastically pursue it, and uh, to, to seek to uh, follow the Lord Christ uh, in, in every area of life. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the gifts you have given to your church through the generations, and we pray that you would maintain the teachings of your gospel, uh, the the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, that you would extend his kingdom, and that you would uh, build his church, and that you would reform it in this day, that your kingdom might flourish. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.